out there. So 1 Timothy chapter 1 is where we'll be starting in verse 1, and we'll work through verse 7. Um, the big question I have today is, how does this all work? Um, if you think about church planting in general, the average church in America is around 60 to 80 people. Um, most churches within the first three years fail. Uh, 80% fail within the first three years. And so we, as a church, are uh, excited because, first of all, we're not, we haven't failed yet, and uh, we're continuing to grow each and every single day. And so now the next question is, how do you maintain uh, in a healthy way? Uh, because with us, we, we don't just narrow health down based on how many people are showing up on Sunday. I know that that is a typical understanding of American culture. Uh, there's a weird kind of myth, I think, of, well, they got a bunch of people showing up. They must be doing something right. And that's not always the case, all right? Uh, we could be doing everything wrong, and people could still show up. Uh, Muslims have a large following, and they increasingly grow, but that doesn't mean that they're doing everything right, all right? And so we don't take that as we're doing everything right. We, we don't take that at all. In fact, we're, we're very cautious with the growth that God has given us. And it's, it's actually kind of helped us assess, okay, how, how, do we, how do we maintain this in a healthy way? If we've got, you know, we've roughly got 60% of our people in life group, which I think is really good uh, for our size congregation. But how do we maintain this in a healthy way where people are being cared for, people are being loved, people are being well discipled? How do, how do we do that because here's what I don't want to see that integrity would be a church where it's just full of consumers of people that just show up on Sunday morning I don't want it to be a place where people can hide I don't want it to be a place where it's just energy and no real depth or real substance I don't want it to be a place where um, th- this is knowledge without real practice I, we don't want to see any of those things take place so how do we make sure and ensure health with growth how do we do that I mean, if only there was a book in the Bible that would help us understand that, right? First Timothy is that book, all right? That's just going to help us work through it. So before we even get into First Timothy, we have to do some background work to kind of help us understand what exactly the Apostle Paul, who's the writer, as what he's facing and what they're dealing with on a regular basis here in this church. So hold your place in 1 Timothy, and flip over to Acts chapter 19. Paul is a church planter, and the book of Acts tells, uh, the, the end of Acts tells the story of how Paul got started and how these churches got started. And so what you would see is Paul, he plants in places like Galatia, he plants in places like Philippi, he plants in some really difficult, hard places like Corinth, and here he plants a church in Ephesus. And Ephesus is a very unique church. Now, now track with me here because it all kind of ties in. Ephesus is a place where Paul went and planted, and he did so by going into Jewish synagogues and preaching the gospel daily and seeing people get saved. And so what he does, and what we see in Acts 19, starting in verse 8, is this account of Paul going and planting and seeing the results that God brings to this church. So look in Acts 19, starting verse 8. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way. Now, the way is a way that you would talk about uh, Christians in general. They were called the way then. I love that. 
before the congregation. He withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannius. Verse 10, this continued for two years so that all of the residents, listen to this, so that all of the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, this is amazing. Asia has never, ever seen a church before. This is the very first church that has been ever planted in Asia. And now you're seeing a church that has exploded so much that everyone in an entire continent has heard the gospel. Both Jews and non-Jews are becoming Christian. They're calling on the name of Christ. And, and man, this thing is blowing up. It's, it's an explosion of the gospel and, and that shakes an entire continent. And so, man, you could look at this and say, wow, this is an incredible, incredible milestone for the early church. And you could look at this and say, this is, they've got to be doing something right. Yeah, they were. They were. But I want you to see the tension here because Paul realizes this tension of growth, but it must transfer into health. Now, if it doesn't, we become a mess. So one of the things I do as a, as a pastor, um, I try to build relationships with older pastors because I think they, they're smarter, okay? Um, I, if I hang around young church planters all the time, young church planters can be some of the most arrogant people in the world. I just want to tell you that. Like, I need to plant my own church. Like, really? Okay, <laughs> you know? So already in that mind, there's some arrogance there. And so with me, I try to balance it out, hang out with some. And I was with this older pastor one day. He was, must have been in his uh, late 60s. He had planted, he had been a pastor for 40 years or something like that. And he was telling me, I just love church plants. I love what you're doing. If I were able to do that, I would do, do it all over again. I'd do that. And he told me, what I, he said, what do you love about church plants? He says, well, church plants are so healthy. And I was like, what do you think is so healthy about church plants? We don't have any money. We're full of, you know, what's so healthy about church plants? And he said, well, they're so full of young people and they have so much energy. And I said, let me just say this. Um, energy does not equal health, all right? Like, for instance, if I tried to just have a consistent diet of Red Bull and energy bars. That does not mean I am healthy. That means I am annoying, all right? That's what that means. So energy does not automatically mean health. It just means energy. It just means you have energy. And so what, what we're cautious about here in integrity is, man, we're, we've seen this thing grow and we've seen a lot of energy around it and excitement and man, people are in being life group. We're seeing people get saved and baptized and we're hearing stories like when we show them, like it's, it's not just like grew up in church my whole life and never was bad. It's like I never went to church. I never darkened the doors. I had this addiction. I had, and we just see these changes over and over again. We can just rejoice and be excited, but we're also like, man, we've got to we have to be cautious here as well because, man, energy does not equal health. Health is something totally different. And what Paul does is in Acts 19, he sees this thing blow up. And by Acts 20, one chapter later, he's already writing to elders of the church of Ephesians, Ephesus, and saying, be careful, be careful. So this is what he does. Acts 20, start verse 26. 
He says, therefore, I testify to you this day, I am not, I, I am innocent, I am innocent of the blood of all, nor of four, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. If that could only be said about us, right? I did not shrink from telling you everything the Bible said. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will rise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. So in the summation, this is what Paul says to this growing church. He says, pay attention to yourselves first, pay attention to the flock, because fierce wolves will not just come in from outside, but from within the church. They will rise up to feed on the flock and to teach things that are not true about God. Very similar to what he says in Ephesians 4 when he writes to them again. And he tells them again, teach sound doctrine so you're not like little children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. So you can grow up and be mature, men and women. He unpacks his whole idea. This is what Paul consistently wants them to grow. Yes, fine, you're growing numerically, but you have to grow in health and love for the gospel. That's what's important. And so what he does here in 1 Timothy is this same church that Paul is writing to these elders and the same church that he's telling and warning and saying, have sound doctrine, preach the word. And he's telling this again in 1 Timothy, but he sends in this guy, this young pastor, probably late 20s, early 30s, into this congregation where fierce wolves were, would rise up. And he tells him, this is where I want you to be. And so if you Go ahead and open up to 1 Timothy 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, the apostle of Jesus, by the command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. He's saying, this is the guy that I've discipled. I've seen this man grow up and love Christ. He says, grace, mercy, and peace from God, the Father, and our Lord and Jesus Christ, our Lord, as I urge you, when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Now, what do we know about Timothy? Well, he's a young guy. His mother and his grandmother were actually primarily, primarily discipling him throughout his life. They taught him the word. His dad was not a believer his dad was not even a, uh, a Jew, and he didn't practice uh, what they did in the Old Testament. He, he wouldn't teach his son the Bible, so it was somewhat of a mixed family, a broken family. And Paul comes in, and he begins discipling this young man. And Paul has a weird way of discipling people because he's very direct. I don't know if you know that about Paul. 
Paul actually told Timothy, hey, I think it would be a good idea if you were circumcised just so it doesn't offend the Jews. Now that's some commitment right there, all right? This guy's, and Timothy's willing to do it. I'll, I'll, I'll be willing to be circumcised so that the Jews won't be offended by my message. No thank you, right? No thank you. But this is what he's willing to do so that other people would know Jesus more. This is Timothy. Timothy's also known as someone who can be kind of a spaz. And in, in 1 Corinthians 16, when Paul tells the church at Corinth, we're going to have more leaders show up. When Timothy shows up, put him at ease because he's a little bit over the top sometimes. And so we know that this is a young, spastic pastor that is being sent into a place where fierce wolves are promised to rise up. And what do you see in verse 3? They're already there. He says, verse 3, Remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So Paul, in the two places that he said fierce wolves will come up, they have already come up. He's right. He's right. He nailed it. And he's telling this young spastic preacher, hey, the first thing that I want you to do is deal with these jokers that are going around and teaching different doctrine about Jesus. They're taking a story of Jesus and they're twisting it to make it sound like something else. By the way, Jesus plus something is nothing. You can't add or take away from Jesus. This is why I struggle with like prosperity gospel or poverty gospel. Anything you add to the gospel is no longer the gospel. So getting the gospel right, it matters. This is why I always tell our church, I want us to be experts in the gospel. We never move away from our love and our understanding of the gospel because if we do, it messes up everything else. And so the first thing that Paul tells young Timothy Watch out for certain persons who are not teaching the true gospel. But he even tells even more on how they're not. Look in verse 4. Nor to devote themselves to myths or endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. Look at verse 6. Certain persons by swerving from these have wandered into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law, listen to this, without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. These are guys that are teaching things. They have no business teaching. They're not even qualified to be teaching what they're teaching. And they're talking about these type of genealogies that have mystical messages and hidden messages in them. So this is the way they would view the Old Testament. You know how the Old Testament is full of lists of names? You ever seen that? If you look in like the beginning of certain books, I mean, there's just a, a whole boatload of names. Look at the book of Numbers. It's full of numbers and names. Look at 1 Kings. Look at 2 Kings. Full of kings. And what they're doing is they're taking these genealogies and they're finding hidden secret messages in them. We don't see this very much today, but we see variations of it even in our culture today. And not long ago, I moved here. Uh, when I moved here, um, I, um, 
I remember seeing a Facebook event that was taking place on campus, and it was called Christological Astronomy. Uh-oh, right? And uh, I, I looked at it, and it was basically encouraging college students to come to this event because it was a speaker. He was an apostle something, um, and I was, I was wondering how old he are, how old he are, how old he is, uh, <laughs> How old he is, because an apostle has to see, be an eyewitness of Jesus' resurrection. So that's interesting. Uh, so he must have been really old, um, old enough to get on Facebook. And, uh, so, but he invited these students to come, and they would find, and the, the purpose of it was to, to look at the constellations and find hidden messages about Christ in the constellations. Like Christ had had hidden certain things about his character, and they're only found in the constellation. They're not in the Bible anymore, but we can go outside the Bible and find them in the constellation. Now, I, was, I like did the Facebook freak out thing where you see something real fast and you respond. That's what I did. I like put, Sola Scriptura, you guys, you know, read the Bible, you know, like that's got kind of flipped out on them. And, um, but honestly, and it scared me because, man, lots of people were signed up to go to this thing. And here, secret hidden messages that are found in the constellations about God. No, man, it's found in Scripture. It's found in Scripture. And we, we even see it in, in other places where you, you might see the guy who's adding up all the verses and chapters of certain parts of the Bible to figure out when the world's going to end. You ever hear that guy? Right? Like, okay, verses and chapters were added just 400 few years ago, right? So it's not like this is, this, like verses and chapters were there when Moses was writing the, the account that happened in Genesis, it's not like he was like, in verse 3. No, these were added later. Like, we need an address. That's what they're doing so that we can help us. So they're not inspired by God. That's what I'm saying. And so it's just interesting that someone would build a whole, it's, it's a mystical way to view Scripture. I mean, even here in the South, I see this all the time. People say, well, I know that this is what the author intended this to say, but my spirit showed me that this is what the verse actually means. Like, there's a hidden message in the Bible outside of what God intended it to be. I mean, when I preach on Sunday morning, here's the way I preach. I preach in such a way that I want to know if Timothy were to come back to life and to sit here today, he would be able to nod his head and say, yep, that's exactly what Paul was saying to me in year 65 when this was written. I want to be able to do that. So if I'm teaching Luke, I want to be able to teach Luke in such a way that Luke would sit there and say, that's exactly what I was saying. But people, what we often do is we try to mysticize this book and say, well, there's a hidden message that my spirit is telling me. By the way, when someone says my spirit is saying this, run, all right? Because you are, man, your spirit is you. That's who you are. You're not like, you're not like split in half, you know? You don't have like another person telling you to do something. And oh, no, no, no. that's just your sin, right? That's just your sin. So we're not, we're not separated and, and kind of, Cut in half in this way. There's no dichotomy there between those two things. But I see it, man, all the time, man. People are, are, are kind of mysticizing the Bible, mysticizing Christianity. I mean, just think about Christian dating as a whole. Christian dating is scary, all right? And it's funny because I, I remember um, dating a girl in college, and she said, Ben, I have something to talk to you about, Okay. God's just saying no right now to our relationship. He said that. <laughs> you heard his voice? No, okay, 
And now, God, you've rejected me, and now God rejects me. He doesn't think I'd be good to date. What am I going to do, right? And so now that, man, I'm double rejected, this girl and God. She didn't want to tell me I'm ugly. She'd rather say God hates you, right? That's worse. That's way worse. And then we do it all the time. We do it all the time. Man, I had a guy, listen, great guy, came to me and said, God laid it on my heart to tell me that I don't think you're preaching the gospel. Well, man, that's a crazy offense. Like, have you not heard any? I mean, I think I do that every second. I feel like I'm always preaching the gospel. But he said, well, God, God laid it on my heart to tell me that. So I, I can't be wrong. I said, well, God laid it on my heart to continue to preach this way. What do we do now? God split in half. We've got to figure out how to put God back together so we can get this message right. No, it's not that, man. You just don't like the way I said this. And okay, let's talk about that. So we were able to have a grown-up conversation when we moved past that. But listen, man, God doesn't do that. In our culture, though, we're plagued with this idea. This is the way. So we mysticize the Bible. We mysticize our Christian walk, and we become, honestly, untouchable. And, and we can't even, no one can even talk to us when we use that language. I mean, you can't, you can't disagree with the girl who says, God told me that you can't be my boyfriend, right? Or how about the crazy guy that says, God told me that you should be my girlfriend, right? <laughs> Run away from that guy, too, right? He's dangerous, too, I'm just saying. And so, man, look, it's not that conversation, but this is the way, because what happens in this conversation, this is what's happening in First Timothy, this is what Paul's dealing with, these people that are, they have these hidden messages and they're finding these hidden secrets in the Bible. And what happens when God speaks to that person that way and he doesn't speak to this person this way, then you're stuck because there's now junior varsity and then now there's varsity. Well, God told me this, sorry I didn't tell you, he must not love you as much as he loves me. See what that does? It's major division in the body. And so what Paul is doing here is he's saying, charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. He mentions this seven times in this book. And people think this whole book is about church order. It's not. Church order is in this book, but the whole purpose of 1 Timothy is to make sure that no one's teaching different doctrine. And he's talking about, man, fierce wolves are going to come up, not from outside, but within. They will rise up and to begin to teach. And he's, he even says it later, remove them, charge them. And I, I gotta tell you, don't think for a second integrity is past that. I mean, there's times where we've had to tell people, and we love you, but you can't teach. We love you, but you can't be in community until you get this right. Because, man, we love the body. And this is what Paul is doing here, is he's correcting an issue that is poisonous from the inside out. Look at what it says in verse 5. He says, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. What he's saying is this, because it seems like this verse is out of place, does it not? 
correct these people. They don't know what they're talking about. They're, 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 ta- they're, saying, things, they're, they're saying things with sure assertions, and they, sh- they have no right to do that because they don't even know about the law. They don't even know what that means in their teaching. And then he says, right in the middle, sandwiched between there, he says, he says our aim is love. What's he, what does he mean by that? He means that getting this right, getting truth right matters. Getting truth right is the most loving thing that you can do for yourself and for others. That's what he's saying. It goes back to the greatest commandment of all. Jesus, when he tells his disciples the greatest commandment, this is what he says in Matthew 22, verse 37. And he said to them, you shall love your, the Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And this is the great, great and first commandment. And the second is like this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. What is he saying is this. The way that we love God affects the way that we love others. You get that? If our aim and our charge is love, we don't just say that in a flowery, cheap sense. We're saying it as in order for us properly, as integrity people, as people that are gathered throughout the week in life groups, if we really want to love one another, we have to know what it means to love the God that created us because he is love. And so, man, if we don't have him right, if we get him wrong, we're not going to know what it means to love one another. That's what he's saying. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second is like this, love your neighbor as yourself. You can't love your neighbor. You can't even have right mission without knowing the God that created you. So the more you love, the more you know God, the more you love God, the more you love God, the more you love God others. And so I think what I've noticed in the last several years of God really maturing me in the gospel, the churches that do the best at proclaiming the gospel and at proclaiming the word of God, they typically do the best at mission. Because they understand it and they begin to get it. And that, them understanding it causes them to love their God more. And their love from God more overflows into generosity. Overflows into wanting to share the gospel more. And overflows into having a passion and a brokenness for those who are dying and going to hell. And so it starts with our love for God. I love what John Piper says. He says, love is overflow of joy in God, which gladly meets the needs of others. I love Frank Sheeds. He's a publisher and author. This is what he says about how important this biblical knowledge is that doesn't puff up. This is what he explains. A virtuous man may be ignorant, But ignorance is not a virtue. I really hate that sound. (laughs) A virtuous man may be ignorant, but ignorance is not a virtue. It would be a strange God who could be loved better by being known less. Love of God is not the same as knowledge of God. Love of God is immeasurably more important than knowledge of God, but... 
If a man loves knowing a little about him, he should love God more from knowing more about him. For every new thing known about God is a new reason for loving God. And you would say, man, it just seems like you're idolizing the Bible when you say this. It seems like you're just, you're just, making, you're just being too theologically neat here. But here's what I'm trying to say. Your understanding of God affects everything else. And it affects the way that you worship. It affects the way you love others and the way you do mission, the way you do church, the way you do community. It affects everything. For instance, if I say I want to love God without knowing him, I will miss the whole relationship. Here's, Here's what I mean. Let's say I walk out of here now and I go home to see my beautiful wife. And I say, Jessica, I'm home and I love you. I, here, here's why I love you. Here's the things I love about you. I love your long, your short, your short blonde hair. Love your short blonde hair. And I love your big brown eyes. And I love your dark skin, and I love your long legs. I love you. I love you. Now, those are really nice things to say, but if you know my wife, that is not an accurate description of her in any way. My wife has long brown hair. My wife does not have brown eyes. She has green eyes. My wife does not have dark skin. She has light skin. My wife does not have long legs. She is vertically challenged. Everyone knows that. Everyone knows that. So this would go bad for me, right? She would say, what happened at church? Or did someone give you something, you know, for your sickness? You know, did, did you, are you feeling better now? You know, there's, it would go bad for me is what it would. Because I said nice things about her, but I did not accurately describe her. So it it absolutely infects my relationship with her. And so this is why it's so important that we actually know how to accurately describe who God is so that we can actually walk in community with who he is. If we get it wrong, man, it's going to sound ridiculous just like that, just like that. And man, Paul, throughout his letters, you're going to see this over and over again. He's always coming back to teaching the right stuff because he's not just saying, I want everybody to believe the same thing. No, he's saying, I want everyone to know God so that when they know God, they'll love others rightly. Let me just show you this. Ephesians, or Philippians 1, starting in verse 9. This is what he says to the church of Philippi. Philippians 1, starting in verse 9. It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more. That's a good prayer, right? It's my prayer, Integrity Church, that our church, would, our love would abound more and more. Great prayer. But look at what he says about how that looks. With knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Now, that's a weird thing to say after you say your love would be abound. This is the way that he describes the, our love abounding more and more, okay? I hope your love abounds more and more in knowledge and discernment. 
Have you ever said that to someone when you want to say, I love you? I love you so much in your knowledge and discernment. You've never said that. You love me in such a, I, I love how you love me with knowledge and discernment. We've never said that. This is what Paul's prayer is for this church, that your love would abound in knowledge and discernment. What does he mean by that? The first thing he talks about is knowledge. It actually means, the word is epignosis. And it's not just a knowledge about him. It's experiential knowledge. That's what the Greek word actually means. It's an experiential knowledge. Very interesting word. And what it means is, is basically this. We can know things about God, but this is the type of knowledge that literally, I'll just say it, beats the trash out of you. And life experiences compared to what you know about God and his character begin to make sense and begin to shape you as a believer. And so let me give you an example of this. Like when I was in college, I went to a Bible college and then I went to seminary and I thought, you know, going through the masters of divinity, right? I'm a master in the divine, right? Give me a break, right? So I was like, you know, the Bible, that's my thing, right? And I'm marrying a girl who's, she was a fairly new believer when we, when we got married. I'm thinking, well, if she has questions, she can come to me because I know the Bible, right? I'm the Bible guy. I have it all in my head. I've got it. But here's what happened. We got married. That's what happened. And um, there's like stuff in the Bible about marriage, but marriage is what helps you be married. All right. I don't know if you know that. And so, man, life just started, whoa, this is hard. This is difficult. I thought I knew a lot about the Bible. Yeah. I don't know anything now. Then I had a kid. And then, man, I was left home with, you know, Finn. He was, you know, six pounds as a little baby left with me. And this can't be hard. All right? Just feed him and change his diaper and it's going to work out fine. Then I went to change his diaper. And then, you know, if cold air, it squirts up, right? It's a sprinkler system, man. I didn't know that. I pick him up. He throws up on me right away. I didn't know that. I didn't know they throw up like that. And Jessica comes home. I'm, I'm wearing different clothes, and so is he. I didn't know, like, you know, six-ounce babies need different types of clothes. I had him, like, in a one-year onesie. You know, he was hanging around. <laughs> because it's hard. It's difficult. And I have two children now. Oh, man, God showed me something there, too. Because I think, I've got one under the belt. I can do a second one. Man, oh, they're totally different. Their personalities are totally different. Didn't know that was, you know, oh, one has a redhead. Oh, he's got a temper. I never saw that coming, right? <laughs> it's like, totally. And, and, man, it's just over and over. God is just using little different things in my life to shape me. And, and man, he's just, it's epignosis. He's using the things I know about him, but he's also using life experiences to shape me and show me because it's all about him sanctifying me. And I look at even little things like my ministry and God's brought me here and man, the things that he's shown me in this, the, the times that I try to discipline my son, Finn. Hey, don't put your hand in the electric socket. Don't eat candy now. I see him throw a fit, and God, what he does is he reminds me. Hey, he reminds me of something else, of another person that I've commanded to do things, but he throws fits when he doesn't get his way. Oh, that's me. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't realize that. 
Because he's, man, he's just consistently using things in my life. He's using this epignosis, this experiential knowledge to apply to my life because he's shaping me because it's all this thing called sanctification. It's where he grows you it's because you're not like a strong believer right away, even though you're excited and ambitious. But man, sometimes just epignosis and time shows you some things. And this is what Integrity Church needs a lot of. We've got a really young church. We don't have a lot of epignosis here. There's more of like, I'm, I can't be stopped. I'm unstoppable, right? Yeah, wrong, <laughs> wrong. The epignosis is huge. And so this is what he's praying for. And he uses the language, I want you to grow in love, that your love would be abound in this way. And the other way he describes it is discernment. This is a word, insight. Your love would grow, be abound in knowledge and discernment. And this is really you saying, you love the things that God loves and you begin to hate the things that God hates. Which is literally this. As a believer, you should grow in your love for God in such a way when people say things about God that are not true, it should at some level make you mad. I gotta tell you, not everything with a Jesus label on it is good for you. I don't know if you know that or not. I mean, our, our, our culture is played with Things about Jesus that are not true. And man, when we see it, it's got to bother us because it's harmful for people if they don't know it. If they don't know the truth, they can't ultimately love God and they can't ultimately love others. And so man, this is, this is why this is so much of a big deal. Because I got to be honest, if we're looking at this and we're, and we're comparing it to what Paul says to young Timothy, the very first thing that comes out of his mouth, that you would charge certain persons not to teach a different doctrine. What he's telling young Timothy to do is tell that crazy guy that's teaching wrong things about Jesus to park it. And most of us would stop and say, that just seems so unloving. It just doesn't seem loving that Paul would do that. Why would he tell him, this is a nice, these are nice people. They're just wrong, but they're just nice people. Just, man, just let them teach it, right? That's what most of us would do in that situation. Man, just let them teach it. No, and Paul says, actually, it's unloving to let these guys teach a different doctrine. Because if they get a different doctrine, they get a different view of God. And if they get a different view of God, they can't accurately and rightly love others. They can't accurately and rightly do mission. So it's unloving to let these guys teach. That's what it is. He's saying, listen, I need you to grow in your knowledge and discernment. Because discernment is to love the things that God loves and hate the things that God hates. And so for you... As a disciple or someone who's going around and sharing the gospel with people and walking through truth, you know people right now that are falling in, in love with doctrines that look like Christian, but they're not. 
and they're dangerous for people. And what Paul is saying, you have to go to those people and help them see who the, what the true gospel is, the gospel that saves, the gospel that said over 2,000 years ago, a savior came and lived a perfect sinless life. And he lived born of a virgin and died on a bloody cross for our sins in our place. He lived the life that we should have lived. He died the death that we were condemned to die. And he died in our place on the cross for our sins. And it, that, those sins went to the grave, but he rose from the grave and he conquered the penalty of Satan, sin, and death. And now we can have eternal life through one name and one person, Jesus. And so when we try to take something else from that, or we try to add to that or take away from that, we're actually doing something that is very dangerous. And when others do the same, and when they fall in love with something that is contrary to that, the loving thing to do is to go and approach them and say, listen, I love you. But this is the gospel. This is the gospel that will change you. This is the gospel that will shape you. This is the gospel that will teach you to love others. We don't get a better example of love outside of Jesus. There is none. God is love. And so my question is this. Do you love God? The God that shows himself to us in Scripture the God who consistently sanctifies us and grows us. Do you desire his word and do you desire his truth? Man, in order for us as a church to maintain this growth that we've seen, that God's brought us, we have to love truth. We have to be a church of love that loves truth, that we're willing to go to the hard places with one another, to those that we're walking in the gospel with, so that we would ultimately love and glorify a wonderful God. Let's pray that God would help us.